0: An American International Airways flight is doing a cargo flight to Guantanamo Bay when they crash. What caused this flight to have such a disastrous end?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
2: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. I got nothing.
1: I got nothing. I don't have anything special to talk about.
2: As far as I'm aware, we don't have any new patrons. Nope. Don't we? No. Nope. We had someone who rejoined. All oh, right. Welcome back, whoever you are. Or, like, changed their card number so it says that they rejoined. Stupid. But really, they didn't. But either way, thank you for your support. Yes, thank patronage. you. And patronage.
1: just dumb that it sends us notifications that way.
2: Yeah, well, Patreon's stupid sometimes. It so, is. So, you know. That's okay. Also, like, check out the newsletter. Newsletter should be coming out. I don't even... This comes out next week. So, n- the week after this comes out. The news, new newsletter. Wow. Good, good God. God. Will come out. So, next yes.
0: week. So, should we give away our trivia question answers today? Yes. That's the idea. Okay. okay I'm going to make that my notes. Because I'm doing that now. Because we forget things.
1: We do forget that Like,
2: constantly. Even when Paige is like, hey. By the way. <laughs> you should do this. You said you'd do this. And then we'd forget. And we'd then forget. it's a thing. And then you should also check out the merch page. Yes, that. Because there's so much stuff that yes. you could own. I just found out we have pajama sets. We do. She just found that out because I'm the one who does all the stuff for the merch page. So
0: I was not made aware of pajama sets. Listen, Linda.
1: There are lots of things on our... We
0: can order pajama sets.
1: Yes. There are... We are going
0: to have matching pajamas, just to make it abundantly clear.
1: There are lots of things available on our merch store, and there are lots of things we can add to our merch store. If so you if have,
0: you have an idea...
1: If you have seen something on a different merch store, and you're like, hey, you should have, we probably can, so...
0: If there's a phrase
2: us. that you want on merch, that has been done before.
1: There was a recommendation recently. There should
2: be uh, something that says it gets worse. Yes, That's what someone <laughs> said should be the new merch thing, is it gets worse. But wait,
1: it gets worse. But
2: wait, it gets worse. Yes. And That's not how you should preface your day, by the way. It
0: always gets worse, but
1: yeah. You know. But it gets worse.
0: Oh, this might be one of those. I don't say it, but. I don't know if
1: it necessarily, nah, I don't know. No, but this one is going to. Uh, uh, the CVR
2: you know, gets worse. But anyway. this one is
1: going to make Miranda mad when we get there.
2: Who recommended it? Uh-huh.
1: Okay. Oh, this was a Tiernan one. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. Was it? Yeah, this is the one he kept bothering me about the entire time he was here. You're right, you're right, you're right. right. And I said, absolutely, we'll do it.
2: Thanks, T. Thanks. All right, then. Then, what are we covering today, Nick?
1: Today, we are covering American International Airlines or Kalita Air Flight 808.
2: They are the same airline. In
0: 1967, Connie Kalita started as Connie Kalita Services. Okay. The airline's name would later become American International Airways before going back to Kalita. It's the same airline. Do they still exist?
1: Oh, absolutely, they do. The call sign for this flight is Connie 808. I mention it once. You probably mention it more than I do.
0: We are reading the CBR. So. so,
1: yes, that is a thing. So, this accident occurred on August 18th of 1993. This was a Douglas DC 861. Talked about the DC 860s plenty of times. They are the longer version of the DC-8 with the original engines. This one had tail number in November 814, Charlie Kilo. The accident flight was a flight from Norfolk in Virginia to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba.
2: Wow. Here's the issue with that.
1: We'll get into all sorts of things uh, with that.
2: Okay, I know you just said this, but when did this take place?
1: 93. Really? August.
2: And they're going to Cuba, huh? Uh-huh. No. Well, we have a base there called Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo oh, yes.
1: Bay I... is, was, and has been owned By the U.S. Guantanamo Bay.
2: I'm surprised that we still have a base there.
1: We do. And it's a very long story as to why, but read into it. It is a prison. It's a prison where we get away with a lot of very illegal things on mainland U.S. territory. Mm -hmm. So it's where we keep, like, suspected terrorists of the world. Things like that. It's the military. It's a big military base. Base. And that's it's, all it is.
2: It all- I just I'm confused like that the Cuban government would let us have a They
1: barely do. Base we took it hostily. Um, and they can't And do that
2: about it. comes up here. Okay. Yeah, so they, I'm glad that we need to discuss it because I don't know the history around that very well.
1: Yeah. It's the whole thing with it is it is a, a it was kind of a hostile take and they can't get it back oh. cuz now our military's there. <laughs> and we're like, look, we only need this little box.
0: When I say this space, little box,
1: it's it's tiny. It's a very small space.
0: It is also referred to as Gitmo. Yes. If you've yeah. ever heard that, like NCIS has covered episodes there, so
1: yes, it is also known as Gitmo. When I've I was just,
2: taking, I've my- also just heard of Guantanamo Bay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There is a picture on the Wikipedia page. I'm sure Miranda will find it. Yep, yeah, probably. If it's if it's on the Wikipedia page, it'll be on the website. Mm-hmm. So so that's a map. That's the
0: airfield. And it is very close to the border with Cuba. That will come up. When I say close, I mean the end of the runway is three quarters of a mile from the border fence.
1: Stealing my stuff.
0: Get used to it.
1: I, I'm you steal my stuff. It. Yes, I'm used to it. But that's because I talked before you. <laughs> Rude. Anyways, so that's a whole thing. We'll get there. Captain for this flight was James Chapo. He was 54 years old at the time. He had 20,727 hours.
2: That's a
1: lot. Of which 1,527 were on the type with the airline. Now, I have
2: to... Okay, wait a minute. What? Which airline? The airline that he's flying with or the airline that's on the airplane?
1: The airline that he's flying with, American International Airways. That's okay. all they really talk about because that's who they actually work for. Now, I have to preface that that is on the type with the airline because they did not give me how many hours the captain first officer had on the type, period. It always said... Okay. On the type with...
2: the airline. Yeah, on
1: the the DC-8 with AIA. Okay, right. Not... So I don't know how many hours they had on the type. It was at
0: least that.
1: Except for the flight engineer. We'll get there. The first officer was Thomas Curran. He was 49 years old. Goes by Tom. Yes, goes by Tom. He had 15,350 hours total, so he was also very experienced. 492 of which were on the type with the airline. Okay. Not a lot with the airline, but... We don't know how many on the type overall. He was actually qualified as a captain even with the airline on the DC-8, which tells me he probably had a lot of hours outside of the airline. Okay. But he primarily flew as first officer. That said, the flight engineer was David Richmond. He was 35 years old. He had 5,085 hours, of which 1,085 are actually on the DC-8 in total. That they did say. They also said that he is actually type rated as a pilot. Okay. On the DC-8 and has time as a pilot on the DC-8. Okay, then. That was an interesting thing, but primarily operates as a flight engineer. So, great. On the day of the accident, the flight crew and the aircraft were scheduled to fly the airplane empty, without cargo, from Atlanta to Norfolk in Virginia to a naval base, load freight for the Navy, then fly to Quindonawa Bay, where they would offload the said freight, and then they would fly the airplane empty back to Atlanta. That's where they would end their day. That's also where the crew is based.
0: And according to air disasters, the cargo load was submarine parts.
1: Now, we, of course, probably have no idea, but sure. Yeah,
2: it's probably, I would think it would be Classified? classified information, but this was also 1993, so. Yeah, we don't know. Maybe not. We don't know. It might be
0: declassified. Also, they interviewed the NTSB for the episode, so they might have spilled those beans. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Whatever. The guy who worked lead on this case was Greg Fife. You, you know his face. I'm sure I do.
1: He's been in many an air disaster's episode. Is he
0: the one with the mustache? No, no. but he was also interviewed.
1: Yes, they um, both were.
0: He now works, actually, as a consultant for NBC, as their aviation expert. This guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he worked lead on this case.
1: Yeah. The crew met at the airport in Atlanta. And did some quick pre-flight preparations before departing Atlanta at 10.10 a.m. local time for Norfolk, Virginia. An hour and 30 minutes later, they arrived at Norfolk at 11.40 a.m. All of these are Eastern time, so they just left at Eastern time, which is such a great thing. Oh, my God. Couldn't tell you how easy this report actually was. It was just so nice. It's just so nice to have an easy report. Anyways. Upon arrival to Norfolk, the captain greeted the freight handler before proceeding to the station office to receive the new flight plan for Guantanamo Bay from the company flight follower. So apparently visiting this naval base in Norfolk is a regular for the airline since they just have a station office there and had a company flight follower. Okay. Okay. So, great. The aircraft was on the ground for about two and a half hours while freight was loaded and the aircraft and crew were prepared for the flight to Guantanamo Bay. For this leg, the captain wants to be the pilot flying while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. All preparations complete. The engines were started and the aircraft began taxiing at 2.05 p.m. local time. The flight took off from Norfolk at 2.13 p.m. The takeoff climb and cruise were normal for the flight. The initial descent was carried out normally. At 4.34 p.m. and 49 seconds, the flight was descending through 32,000 feet when the first officer made initial contact with the Guantanamo radar controller. This is not the tower controller at the airport. This is just the area radar controller for Guantanamo. Several exchanges occurred between the first officer and the radar controller before the controller instructed, quote, Connie eight oh eight heavy Guantanamo radar maintain v f r one two miles off the Cuban coast no reported traffic in the area report east point leeward field landing runway one zero wind one eight zero at eight altimeter two nine nine seven so break that down real quick. They're being told to maintain visual reference to the coast of Cuba because they have to fly along the eastern edge of Cuba. And they're being told to stay 12 miles east of Cuba at a in, visual distance.
0: In international waters.
1: In international waters, exactly. As they fly down, because Guantanamo Bay is on the south side of Cuba, so they have to fly around it to get to it. So that's the whole point there. They were telling them that they have to report when they reach East Point, which is a reporting point for the approaches. Leeward Field is the name of the airfield, the base at Guantanamo. Okay. And they were using runway one zero at the time, which is landing, heading due east. Gave them the winds and the altimeter. The altimeter we don't really talk about too much, but we have in the past where that is the pressure altitude. Yeah. You have to set airport.
0: your instruments to that.
1: Right. You adjust it so that your altimeter is calibrated correctly. The first officer acknowledged the transmission, but then requested a change to land on runway 2-8. So heading due west instead, the opposite end of the runway. This is primarily because the winds were relatively calm, it was a clear day, and that is a significantly easier approach. Talk about that later on. The air traffic controller acknowledged and issued further instructions to include crossing the East Point Fix. The flight crew had some confusion about the location of the East Point Fix. So the first officer requested clarification from the air traffic controller. The flight crossed the East Point Fix at 4.38 p.m. at 22,000 feet. Around that time, the flight crew discussed and decided to switch their approach back to runway 10 instead, and if they have trouble with the 10 approach, they would then attempt runway 28. The first officer informed the air traffic controller of their decision to switch back to an approach to runway 10 instead. 4 42 pm and 48 seconds, the air traffic controller acknowledged and asked if they wanted to make a left entry or a right entry, to which the first officer responded that they would make a right entry. So,
0: This means right-hand turns.
1: Right-hand turns for the runway. Right. So they're going to be flying to the south side of the airfield to make a 90-degree right turn to fly perpendicular to the runway, and then a 90-degree right turn to fly final for touchdown. Okay. So this runway runs pretty much directly east to west. Not quite 10 10 degrees off, but close enough. basically directly east to west. The flight crew then discussed the requirements for the right entry for this approach. This was a tricky entry pattern, as it required them to fly to the south of the airport over the water on a westerly heading before turning to the north and aiming just to the right of a strobe light placed on the shoreline where the Guantanamo Bay and Cuban border meet. Then they would make a relatively heavy right turn to head east for a very short final approach to runway 10, since the threshold was only three quarters of a mile from the Cuban border. So, very, very short final. To put in perspective, most aircraft at most airports do anywhere between a 5 and 10 mile final.
2: They get three quarters of a mile.
1: Three quarters of a mile is nothing.
2: That's because they'd fly into Cuban airspace, right? Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, and they absolutely don't want to do that.
2: Because they can be shot down. Uh Uh-huh, they are actually told you will be shot down. They
1: they were told that apparently some Cuban soldiers like to just hang out by the border and just fire shots at aircraft in the area. That's nice. (laughs) Yes, so. Which is why
2: I say again, why do we have a base in Cuba? (laughs) Right, prisoners.
0: Prisoners. Torturing prisoners. Yes, so.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: I don't like it, just to be clear. Not many people do. I hate it, actually.
1: 4.45 p.m. and 51 seconds. The flight was transferred to the Guantanamo Tower Controller. So now they've switched controllers. The first officer made initial contact a few seconds later with the tower controller. 446 p.m. and seven seconds, the tower controller stated, quote, runway 10, wind two zero zero at seven, altimeter two nine nine seven, report point alpha, end quote. So the winds have changed a little bit, but not too much. The first officer acknowledged then requested clarification on the location of point alpha, and the air traffic controller provided clarification. 446 p.m. and forty one seconds, the captain began the approach sequence, requesting fifteen degrees of flaps, and the approach checklist. They completed the approach checklist and as they neared the airport, several discussions about the approach parameters were had between the flight crew and the air traffic controller as well as amongst themselves in the cockpit. The landing gear was lowered and eventually flaps 50 degrees was selected, per the captain. 4.52pm and 22 seconds, the flight engineer stated, quote, slow airspeed, end quote, and the first officer followed with, quote, check the turn, end quote. With the autopilot off, the captain had full manual control of the aircraft. The first officer made altitude callouts as they entered their right turn for final. The aircraft banked hard to the right for the turn-to-final approach for runway 10. 4.54 p.m. and 12 seconds, a stall warning activated, and both the first officer and flight engineer stated, quote, stall warning, end quote, out loud. Yes, thank you. Yes. One of the crew members stated, quote, max power, end quote, on the ground. Many people at the base where the flight was landing watched the aircraft as it made its turn, yeah. including the crew of a Navy C-130 that was parked on the airport ramp. The witnesses stated seeing the aircraft enter the turn at a normal 30 to 40 degree bank angle, but at about what appeared to be 400 feet above ground level, the bank angle increased to beyond 60 degrees in an effort to make the runway. Some believed that the aircraft would end up landing on the ramp due to the perceived trajectory from the ground. The witnesses then observed the aircraft beginning to roll wings level around 200 to 300 feet above ground level, but the nose pitched up just before the right wing appeared to stall and the aircraft rolled to a 90-degree bank to the right, and the nose pitched over toward the ground. Witnesses watched as the nose and right wing hit the ground nearly simultaneously, striking the flat open field before the runway threshold. The jet immediately broke apart and burst into flames. They had struck the ground just 1,400 feet short of the runway at 4.56 p.m. local time. The airport fire and rescue crews immediately rushed to the crash site, some having witnessed the crash, because... To be fair, this is not a super busy airfield, so a lot of people were just watching the goings-ons. Chilling. They were chilling and watching the large aircraft approach. They arrived and began spraying the areas of fire and combing the many large pieces of wreckage left behind. Suddenly, one of the firefighters was astonished when he found the inverted and separated cockpit section, which separated from the fuselage as designed, actually. He approached it and found that all three crew members were inside and asking for help. They were all alive, but severely injured. They were trapped inside for some time due to the damage to the cockpit section, some of which was they had struck a boulder. It had come through the floor section of the cockpit and had injured the first officer's legs.
0: Jesus!
1: Yep. Rescuers managed to remove all three crew members. They were then rushed for medical treatment. It was determined that they would need to be rushed to a hospital as soon as possible. Now, Cuba would not participate in such a thing. That said, after receiving special clearance to cross Cuba so that they could shave some time off, medical aircraft rushed the crew members from Guantanamo Bay back to the U.S. mainland where they could be treated.
0: At a Congrats. Hospital. You survived a plane crash. Please get on another plane.
1: Yeah. Right now. Yeah.
2: If it meant you didn't die from your injuries, I'm pretty sure you'd be okay with
1: it. Yeah. Now, I left... An unbelievable amount of things out. I also... Oh, yes, you did. I also gave some really good foreshadowing. I'm proud of what I wrote. So, good luck. Some of y'all figured it out. Some of y'all didn't.
0: Oh, no one figured out the extent of it.
1: No. No, they did not. But there was a few key giveaways to some of the things that were happening. So, we'll get into it.
0: This investigation was performed by the... NTSB? Yeah. Yeah. Greg Fife, remember? It
1: was on U.S. territory on u.s soil why do we have dude i don't (laughs) i'm not touching that one still there both
0: black boxes were recovered from the wreckage actually if you take a look at the picture of the wreckage it's mainly the fuselage like the middle of the fuselage that burned the tail looks fine Mm
1: -hmm. most of yeah most of the rear of the fuselage was actually pretty okay it was the forward section since it had struck nose first Man, that
2: was submarine parts that was pretty expensive
1: oh yeah of course it was
2: (laughs) but you know what that means there's a CVR and an FDR.
0: Uh-huh. You are correct. And they provided vital information to the investigation after being read out at NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. Washington.
1: Washington. Washington.
0: Investigators started with interviewing twenty witnesses at Guantanamo Bay and were lucky enough to find out that a U.S. Navy C-130 crew of four had witnessed the whole crash transpire. I'm actually going to read verbatim the statement.
1: Yes, from I did one not. Those pilots. I did not read it exactly verbatim, but I did re- summarize.
0: Ahem. <clears throat> I saw the DCA on a wide right base for runway 10. It appeared to be at approximately 1,000 feet above ground level. I was interested in watching such a large plane shoot the approach. It looked to me as if he was turning to final rather late, so it surprised me to see him at a 30 to 40 degree angle of bank, trying to make final. At 400 feet above the ground, he increased angle of bank to at least 60 degrees in an effort to make the runway, and was still overshooting. At this time, the aircraft's nose turned right, and it appeared he was trying to use bottom rudder to make the runway at this point he appeared to be 200 to 300 feet agl he was still overshooting and my co-pilot remarked he was going to land on the ramp his wing started to rock towards wings level and the nose pitched up at this point the right wing appeared to stall the aircraft rolled to 90 degrees angle of bank and the nose pitched down end quote yep The statement was corroborated by the other three C-130 pilots. A different witness stated that the jet struck its nose and right wing at about the same time and there were no flames or anything unusual prior to the crash. Investigators wondered if something went wrong mechanically to make them need to take such a hard bank. So they recreated the flight path from the flight data recorder and found that that didn't seem to be the case. When comparing the accident flight path with a normal one for that approach, they took the right turn to the runway too late, and the severe bank seemed to be a way to get back on course. Why didn't they go around when they realized they had approached incorrectly? Why did they even attempt such a difficult approach to begin with? The other significant interview was that with ATC, who revealed that the crew had requested to land on runway 10 instead of the normal easier runway 28. Was it because of winds? No. The reported winds at the time were from 200 at seven knots, which more favors runway 28. This was a highly experienced crew. I'm sure they had a reason for making such a request. Investigators weren't able to ask the crew themselves as to why the decision was made, as they were too severely injured to be interviewed immediately. So investigators consulted the CVR and found the mother load.
2: Uh oh. This is where this comes in, huh?
0: Not quite yet. Okay. Investigators played the recording from the cockpit right before the request to change the approach to runway 10 to see if they could discern why that decision was made. At 4.41 and 53 seconds, the captain said to his co pilots, I'll make that 10 approach just for the heck of it to see how it is. Why don't we do that? Let's tell them we'll take 10. If we miss it, we'll just come back around and land on 28?
2: End quote. So they did the weird thing where they're like, yeah, dude, let's try it, dude, let's go, dude. Kind we of. can do it, dude. For <laughs> the heck of it.
1: There's a little more going Why? on. There's a little more going on here than that, but yes, kind of. That Why
0: d- make your
2: job harder?
0: Agreed. That also doesn't sound like a captain with 20,000 hours of flight Yeah, time. what the hell?
1: Now, agreed. But again, there's a little more to it than that. We'll get there.
0: Oh, we will get there. So you pick the harder approach, having never landed such a large aircraft at Guantanamo before. Actually, the only one in the aircraft who had landed at Gitmo before was the first officer. And no, he did not do an in a DC-8.
1: And he didn't remember. <laughs> I mean, he does, but he did A while ago. But yeah, it wasn't enough. Years. To, he, he wasn't basically qualified to land. Anymore.
0: Nope. Did you not realize how much harder you were making your life by picking this? Were they even trained for this? This airfield was a special use airfield because of the proximity to the Cuban border, and pilots were told that Cubans had guns ready for any aircraft that flew astray.
2: yep. Which, again, doesn't surprise me.
0: Investigators proved with the aircraft weight and flap setting that it was possible to make this turn without overflying the border fence. To do so, while limiting the bank angle to 30 degrees, the turn must be started at a precise point while flying north on the base leg, the leg perpendicular to the runway before turning final. This point is very close to the borderline and is based on the radius of the turn as well as wind conditions. Next, the transition from wings level to 30 degrees of bank has to happen within two seconds of crossing the reference point. A delay of six seconds mean you then have to have a bank of 45 degrees. So seconds count. Yes, they do. It is a very tight window that you're working with. All through the turn, the crew has to consider the airplane's load factor and how that can affect drag and decrease the stall margin. And this can all be handled by adjusting engine thrust to maintain airspeed and descent path. All this to say you need special training to land here. What was that special training? A video. It was a video. That's it? Uh Uh-huh. Congrats, you can now land at this special-use airport and not get shut down by the Cubans. Okay. Okay, but this all still doesn't explain why the crew didn't opt to go around when they realized how steep of a turn they would have to take. Again, super experienced crew. They know how to go around. Let's go back to the CVR. About 14 miles out, the crew are discussing visibility, which is 7 miles, and the flight engineer said, That's the airport straight ahead. Captain says, Huh? Huh? The first officer, assumedly pointing at the chart, says M-U-G-M is right here, which is the airport code for this airport.
1: Okay.
0: The flight engineer says 14 miles straight off the nose, and the captain says okay. At six miles out, the captain says, wonder if that's the airport right there straight ahead of us. The first officer says, that is the airport straight ahead of us. See the lake on the other side? They literally just
2: said that, and he went, I wonder if that's the airport right in front of us.
0: The flight engineer says six miles. That's got to be it. And the first officer says, that's the lake on the other side of the airport. The captain responds, this thing is just about dead nuts. To which the others agree. The flight engineer says, little
2: right of course. I don't know if it was supposed to say off course. I don't know. Or little, little right of course, like to the right You're the I, to the right of the course. I
1: think he's suggesting that they're a little to the right of where they're supposed to. Yeah. Okay. And he noted.
0: And the captain asks, huh? And the flight engineer repeated himself. And the captain said, oh, yeah. First officer says, you're a 1,400 feet turbojet circling minimum situation. You want to get all dirty and slowed down and everything? So he's reminding the captain how close they are and that they haven't really slowed down and extended flaps all that much. They had extended some flaps. I don't remember how much. Not enough.
1: You might have noticed that their full flap setting was 50, which... They're not allowed to do. It's also, like, unheard of. Airplanes aren't built with 50 degrees of flaps anymore. Like, that just doesn't happen. Like, DC-8s were one of the only ones that ever had... 50 degrees of flaps. Yeah.
0: So the captain says, oh, I will, yeah. Okay, there, that's the end of the runway, right there. And someone says, yeah, it's 2-8. first officer says, I'd give myself plenty of time to get straight. And the captain asks, huh? First officer says, maintain a little water off because you're going to have to turn. At this point, the tower radios in and says, Connie-808, Cuban airspace being three quarters of a mile west of the runway, you are required to remain within this airspace designated by a strobe light. And the first officer responds, Roger, we'll look for the strobe light, Connie-808 heavy. Now, we are actually going to read straight off of the CBR. I have a slideshow. I will take the captain, which is cam 1. You want to divvy up the two of you? So, cam 2,
2: cam 3. Great. But also, can we discuss they're not actually landing on 2-8, right? They're landing no, on but on they have zero. to pass 2-8. Oh, okay. Right. So they can see
1: 2-8. Okay. I think you're getting in close before you start your turn.
2: Yeah, the runway is right here, man. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got it. You're not right on it. Going to have to
0: really honk it. Let's get the gear down. All right. The landing gear gets extended. Gear's down. The trouble is, I can't see the...
1: There's the runway right there.
0: See the black strip right there? At this point, there's some discussion with air traffic control about a crane. It doesn't end up being pertinent. And the flaps get lowered to 50 degrees, which is a lot. Yes. Anyway. Now we got to stay on one side of this road here, right?
1: Yeah, we got to stay on this side, on this side over here. You can see the strobe lights.
0: The engine RPM goes up. Slow airspeed.
1: Check the turn.
2: Where's the strobe? Right over there. Where?
1: Right inside there. Right inside there.
2: You know, we're not getting our airspeed back there. Where's the strobe?
1: Right down there.
2: I still don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) We're never going to make this.
0: Huh? Where do you see a strobe light? The engines decrease in RPM. Right over here. The altitude warning horn goes off. That's normal. It's a call out.
1: Somebody says, all right.
0: Gear. Gear down. Spoilers armed. Gear down. Three green. Spoilers flaps. Checklist. I think it's the first officer who says the next Probably.
1: Line. They have a question mark, which is why we don't know. There you go. Right there. Looking good. Where's the strobe? Do you think you're going to make this?
0: Yeah. If I can catch the strobe light.
1: 500. You're in good shape.
0: Watch the keep your speed up. Ha ha ha. Yeah.
1: 140.
0: Sound similar to engine power being increased. Sound similar to stall
1: warning. It was the stall warning.
0: <laughs> Someone says stall, stall warning. warning. I got it. Stall warning. Stall warning. I got it. Back off.
1: Somebody says. Max power. Max power.
2: Someone says there it goes. There it goes. Yep. Someone says oh no. Sounds of several screams. And then the end of the recording. Okay, here's what I... Can we talk about? Hold on a second. Hold on a five (laughs) second.
1: And just so you know, there are some really big details you still don't know yet.
2: Okay, but what the is the captain not seeing that the first officer and the flight engineer are? Actually, Actually, really funny
0: that you mentioned that. So there was clearly a cognitive fixation by the captain on the strobe light. Yes. He can't see the strobe light. The other two can. It is worth noting... There is a very strong plot twist here. The strobe light was inoperative.
1: None of them saw the strobe light. So how
0: the f*** were they seeing the strobe light? They weren't. They were seeing the sun glint off of a cabana on the beach.
1: Which is not far from where the strobe is.
0: But no one had told the air traffic controller that the strobe light was out. So they didn't know? No. Okay. Granted, the second sign of the boundary fence is that cabana. So I mean, it's still
1: a useful. F-
2: but also, they saw the runway, and he couldn't see the runway either.
1: He didn't when they were far away. When they got close, he knew where he was, but he was still fixated on the strobe light to make his turn, which was not a helpful thing. I'm just to saying do. that
2: this captain seems a little sus.
1: He's well, It's, a,
2: it's a apt that you say that.
1: It's again. There's a really big detail you don't know yet.
2: I'm just
0: saying it's sus. You but not- the, the whole strobe light thing doesn't change the fixation.
1: No, it does not.
0: This is a huge point that shows a degraded mental state. And sure, that could explain away the crash. It has before. But investigators felt there was something deeper here. So they kept digging. What would cause such a degradation of mental capacity? Let's look at the crew's schedule for the last few days.
2: Oh, don't tell me they were fatigued. Don't do that to me.
1: <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Again? To the podcast. Again?
2: Again? <laughs> Why again? Why do we always have to cover this every single time?
1: Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. This is the
2: other- damn it. Miranda said she wouldn't scream that much. So they're overworked, is what you're telling me. Oh, oh
1: not in the honey. not in the smallest way. They are very overworked.
0: So the captain and first officer started their time together. On the 16th, the accident was on the 18th, find you, just a reminder. two days prior. They started on the 16th at 11 p.m. in Atlanta, and they flew to varying places until landing at Dallas-Fort Worth on the 17th at noon, ending a shift of 13 hours on duty with 5.6 hours of flight time. They had a layover there until 11 p.m. the 17th. During that layover, the captain slept five hours and the first officer slept eight hours. This is the airport that the flight engineer joined them for this 11 p.m. reporting time after having slept six hours. They departed DFW for Ypsilanti, Michigan, where they landed at 3.25 a.m. They remained there for three hours while freight was loaded, and they had coffee and donuts. They departed at 6.20 a.m. and ended the day at Atlanta at 7.52 a.m., where the flight engineer was given a hotel and the rest of the crew planned to
1: go home. That was their home base. Any guess what day that was? 7.52 in the morning they ended their duty day?
0: The 18th, the day of the accident. But at 8.30, they were brought back. 8.30 a.m. They had just landed at 7.52 a.m.
1: One of them had just gotten back with his family, like met him at the airport. One of them was on the way home after stopping at the auto parts store.
0: At 8.30, they were reassigned to fly to Norfolk and then to Guantanamo Bay. And then to come back to Atlanta. The crew scheduler was advised that they would finish within the 24-hour duty time. Hold on a second. And there would not be any legal problems with duty time because it was considered an international flight.
1: This is correct. That's... At the time, this was legal.
2: How? How? Did anyone ever think, this is a great idea, you know what we should do? Well, and... You know what we should do? We should make sure that they can fly for 24 hours straight. Not so, fly for 24 hours, but have a 24-hour
0: duty
1: time. So, to give a little bit But back, most
0: of that is flying at this point. Not actually.
1: Actually, most of it is not,
0: but... The accumulated flight... That's my next sentence. Yes. The accumulated flight hours for the revised schedule would be 11 hours and 45 minutes, so about half of the time was flying.
1: Right. The whole reason they're having to do such a thing, actually, was because originally an aircraft was going to fly empty from Miami to Norfolk, then down to Guantanamo, and then back to Miami with a different crew on a different airplane whose tail number was ironically November 808, Charlie Kilo. (laughs) This is flight 808 for those that don't remember. That aircraft had a mechanical issue that the airline only found out about just a little before 830. 8.30 and so they were like crap what do we do well we have have this crew we have a crew in an airplane in atlanta which isn't that far off that's empty same type of airplane can do the whole thing and they technically still have duty time left if we stretch them into the international rule
0: which they could so the crew scheduler said he was familiar with the three crew members and that he had called on them for overtime assignments before and they usually accepted To put in perspective for the 29-ish hours leading up to the accident, the captain was awake for 23 and a half hours, sleeping for five hours. The first officer was awake for 19 hours with eight hours of sleep, and the flight engineer had 21 hours of being awake and six hours of sleep. At the time of the accident, they had been on duty for 18 hours.
2: Okay, who, who, in their logical mind, thinks this crew has already, most of them, two of them, have been on duty For over 20 hours. Mm -hmm. With minimal sleep. Mm -hmm. And they think they can do it. Let them go. They can do it. The crew members discussed the trip and decided that it was legal.
0: Though pushing the edge, the captain, when finally interviewed, said he did not feel particularly fatigued, but would have rather gone to bed. I mean.
1: No. Sorry. (laughs) They're also... I'm sure you talk about this, but they're cargo crews. So they're- Let me get there. Okay.
0: The first officer said with this company, quote, you better really be tired, end quote, to refuse the trip. The NTSB. What en- the does that mean? Exactly. I will get to that later. The NTSB enlisted the help of NASA to perform a fatigue study on the accident crew. As we have discussed before, sleep loss can lead to degradation of decision-making, vigilance, reaction time, memory, psychomotor coordination, and information processing, as well as affect your emotional state, leading to irritability, which leads to bad CRM. The following is a quote from NASA at the NTSB public hearing. The third important point, I think, is that we don't usually take sleepiness seriously. But sleepiness during our waking hours can essentially affect every aspect of human capability and performance. A few of those things like decision making. So with sleep loss, people would have problems making decisions. People who otherwise would make fine decisions deciding among three alternatives could go with the first one. They don't process critical information very well. Reaction time can be degraded. Again, it's not an extreme case when you're asleep. People get tunnel vision. They can literally focus on one piece of information to the exclusion of other kinds of information. Does that sound familiar? The second is the fixation on the strobe light. I counted seven comments in the CBR transcript about the strobe. I think what's really critical about that is that in sleep loss situations, you get people with tunnel vision. They get fixated on a piece of information to the exclusion of other things. The other thing is right in the middle of that, he, the captain, disregards a critical piece of information. The first officer or flight engineer. Someone saying, I don't know if we're going to make this. So besides just fixating, you've got disregard for a critical piece of information. A second piece of evidence, as I said, was the captain, his being lethargic and indifferent. I think that lethargic just tells you he was tired, fatigued. One of the findings in sleep deprivation studies is that people will put in more effort in spite of the fact that their performance goes down, but they don't care what happens. That's indifference. Mm -hmm. So that was the end of that quote. There are a couple of other factors that went into the fatigue study. Biologically speaking, humans are not nocturnal. And forcing individuals to adapt to a nocturnal sleep pattern, as is customary in the freight and cargo aviation industry, has a negative effect, especially when coupled with the sleep debt that the crew had experienced. The other phenomenon is one we seem to be discussing more and more on this podcast in the last year or so. There are two periods of the day where we as humans are inherently more lethargic and experience fatigue purely based on the time of day. These are called the window of circadian low. Yes. And they occur roughly between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., as well as between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., they crashed at 4.56 p.m., right during the window of circadian low. So The evidence of fatigue was seen in the decision to land Runway 10 just for the heck of it. Des-
1: Not a good idea.
0: Despite their unfamiliarity with the approach as well as their fatigue condition, when the straightforward approach to Runway 28 made much more sense. The fatigue became more evident once more in the captain's fixation on the strobe light, losing focus on the airport features, and attaining and maintaining visual contact with the runway. The continued fixation led to an unstabilized airspeed control for approach. The lack of situational awareness of the aircraft in relation to the runway led to an early turn to the base leg, which decreases that three quarters of a mile distance they have when turning from base to final and didn't provide them time to align with the runway. The flight data recorder shows that the airspeed dropped to 140 knots indicated airspeed, seven knots below the target speed of 147. At the target speed, a constant bank of 55 degrees would have been needed to achieve the turn, and that was a quote-unquote inappropriate maneuver for a DC-8. Because of the load factor during such a turn, the stall speed would have been 143 knots. The turn started at less than 30 degrees, not enough to make the turn, but it increased to beyond 55 degrees, resulting in a loss of airspeed until the aircraft didn't have enough air going over the wings to maintain lift, and it stalled. There was no evidence of an increased engine thrust or reduction in bank angle to prevent a stall. Now, that being said, the air disasters episode did depict all three crew members having their hands on the throttles and pushing it to max. Yeah. Which does correspond with witness reports that the wings came level and the nose started to go up. Investigators interviewed the CEO of the airline and found that to remain competitive in the industry, the company often had to assign long duty times and work everything right to the edge of what was allowed by the federal aviation regulations, and that this was very common in the industry. According to the chief crew scheduler, there was an unwritten company procedure to avoid assigning crews to more than 24 hours continuous duty time, but the captain had reported getting assigned 24-hour duty periods several times previously. The chief scheduler also reported that it was seldom that crews refused assignments due to fatigue. The captain had never refused a trip for fatigue and didn't know of any crew members that had ever done so. Several former AIA pilots had told the NTSB about their concerns of the airline's scheduling practices. One even stated that he had been subjected to outright intimidation by the company. Investigators acknowledge that the current policy relies heavily on the judgment and integrity of individual pilots, but individuals are awful at recognizing their own fatigue and often underestimate it. You pile company pressure on top of that, and it's a recipe for disaster. They also recognize that companies are unlikely to voluntarily change their policies, or that crew members will fight back on assignments. The only change will come from regulations. And that's what happened.
1: (sighs) There's lots of things to talk about here, and we'll get into some of it when I do the findings and the recommendations, because they touch on the depth of these regulations for cargo pilots. Obviously, some things needed to change. You think? And some things did change. But the one thing that has not changed is that cargo operators primarily still operate at night.
0: It's not as big of a deal
2: as long as those other things aren't a factor exactly. compounding the issue. So As long as they're getting adequate amounts of rest right. and off time.
1: So the way that cargo operators, and to be fair, it's there's a little bit of, it goes a little both ways. So some operators have decided that they will just operate whatever schedule is conducive to getting cargo where it needs to be, i.e. Atlas Air who does this for Amazon, primarily. That's why they're... Primarily? They're Prime Air birds. You will see them flying any and all times of day. You will see FedEx and UPS birds operating pretty much any time of day, but you will definitely see them all operating in the middle of the night.
0: Pull up Flight Radar 24 at midnight. Tell me what you find.
1: Watch around, like, say, 8 to 10 p.m. around Memphis and Louisville, and you will be in shock the number of large wide bodies that are on the move, and that is because they're usually best operated out of the hub to the spoke, so out to wherever else in the United States or North America, and then back before sunrise, if they can. But the crew only does the one turn, so having a monopoly in the industry between these two, FedEx and UPS. A duopoly. A duopoly, yes. Generally has made this doable and has actually benefited crews per se, in terms of fatigue. Maybe not in other areas, but in terms of fatigue it has. DHL operates in a pretty similar way. Atlas Air is a little bit of the outlier. They operate all times of day because Amazon doesn't want to stop moving things. So that's their call. They've decided to have crews around the clock. Not that the other airlines don't, but they do on a much larger scale.
0: There's a reason a lot of Atlas Air pilots are jumping ship.
1: Yes. Not to say they're like a super bad airline. They're not. But I have known many a pilot now from Atlas Air that are have done their time and they're ready to get out.
2: Well, it's anyone who's worked for Amazon. <laughs> Literally <laughs> yeah. anybody yes. who's worked for Amazon. Wants Amazon out. works them To death.
1: Agreed. And And then
2: they go, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Bye. Right. And then they pull more people in because they have, you know, you've seen all the commercials and stuff about it. But like the thing about them having like regulated bathroom schedules and like what the.
1: Yes. And there are so many regulations that Amazon cannot get around when it comes to aviation.
2: Oh,
0: but they would if they could.
1: Oh, they would if they could save a buck.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: But, but this
0: is why we have regulations.
1: Right. And this Kalita Air accident is definitely a very prime reason as to why this was happening. So we will discuss most of this in the second half when I get to the findings and recommendations. But there's a lot more that happened to the regulations because of this accident.
0: Hello. We're back.
1: Can I just say that this report really was really nice. Like the last few episodes, the the ones that we've been doing, those reports were just ugly. Like they made it such a pain to do my notes. It took me a third of the time at normal it has been taking. Oh my
0: gosh, we were done by like
1: 2. We were done in less than 2 hours I think both of us doing our notes for this one. It's beautiful because like all the way through, like everything, just because it was so clean.
0: Granted, I had done some of my notes a little earlier in the week, and we watched the air disasters episode
1: earlier in the yeah, week, this, which always helps. But even then, this was not a difficult one. I just, it, these older NTSB reports, not old, but like pre 2010, maybe even pre 2000, yeah. Their reports were just so easy because they were concise and easy to read. So along those lines, there's only 13 findings, and they're nice and neat. And I am doing most of them because I actually think they're worth it. They found that in view of all the circumstances, the captain's decision to land on runway 10 was inappropriate.
2: Yeah,
0: I would say so.
1: Right. Now, to tie into that, they found that the flight crew members had experienced a disruption of circadian rhythms and sleep loss, which resulted in fatigue that had adversely affected their performance during a critical phase of flight. Yes. I.e., decision-making.
2: Because that's what happens when you schedule people for more than eight hours a day. Yes.
1: Shocker. Shocker. Yep. They found that the flight crew had been on duty about 18 hours and had flown approximately nine hours at the time of the accident, and to think they had to do a whole other leg after this. The company had Which, intended- Which, by the yeah. way,
2: like- Oh, yeah. Boggles my mind that they were also expected to go all the way back-
1: Right, right. To it's Atlanta. another, like, three hours. And- that's exactly what they say next, basically. The company had intended for the crew to ferry the airplane back to Atlanta after the airplane was offloaded in Guantanamo Bay. This would have resulted in a total duty time of 24 hours and 12 hours of flight time, the maximum permitted under 14 CFR section 121.521.
2: Isn't eight hours the max without a relief crew?
1: It is now. Yeah. And this applies for everybody, domestic and international.
2: Because, turns out, everyone needs sleep after an arrest after eight hours of work? Of yeah. active work.
1: Right, active work, exactly. supplemental rules for overseas and international flights. That's the ending of that. That's what the portion of that one, of Part 121, is, dot 521. All right. They found that if the flight crew had been scheduled to conduct a flight within the United States, similar to that of Flight 808, the flight crew would have exceeded the flight and duty time requirements of 14 CFR Section 121.505. That is the domestic scheduling, oh. So within the United States, they would have been illegal.
2: Okay, uh, so here is my
1: question, because
2: uh-huh. I know they got around this because they're like mm-hmm. they're going international, mm-hmm. but they're going to a U.S. territory for
0: some godforsaken reason. It counted as international
1: because they're not.
0: They go over international waters. They're
1: going. Maybe over... That's why, right? They're going over international waters. So that's part of why, and they're outside of the contiguous United States.
2: But they're going to a United States territory. Mm-hmm. So it should be United States like commercial. You know what I mean? Like it's sort it's, of. it's it's it's, yes. it's it's I know what you mean. That one section of yes. Cuba yes. is monitored by the FAA, technically. Yes. Right? Yes. So like technically they are still in the US.
1: They can still get around it. They found that the Department of Defense slash the Navy did not have a procedure in place at Guantanamo Bay to ensure that all air traffic controllers were made aware of the inoperative strobe light.
2: Which I feel like is a huge breakdown on their part. Yes. Like, you should know if a piece of equipment's not going to work.
1: Yes, you're correct. And the whole thing with that is that because it's a critical part of an approach to one of the two runways at the airport, they needed to have that information. That is critical information. And if it's not provided to the controllers, the controllers can't provide that information to the pilots. That needs to be known. And I understand that like visual conditions still existed and such, so there was still some reasonable presumption that they should be able to make the approach anyway. That's still, this is, the whole part of the approach says it's supposed to be flown with the strobe light. As a visual reference, the fact that the captain did not recognize the deteriorating flight path and airspeed conditions due to the preoccupation with locating the strobe light on the ground. This lack of recognition was despite the conflicting remarks made by the first officer and the flight engineer questioning the success of the approach. Repeated call-outs by the flight engineer stating slow airspeed conditions went unheeded by the captain. I mean, this was a sign of fatigue, of course. Really, really, really big one. And if you watch the Air Disasters episode, actually, they managed to interview the captain and the first officer, as well as the flight engineer. And the interesting thing is there is absolutely no animosity between any of them, and they all accept what happened. As a matter of fact, two out of the three of them went on to continue flying. Do you know which two? I don't remember. I don't remember. I think it was the first officer and maybe the flight engineer. But anyways, they continued flying. And even the captain admits this was all of this was a mistake. And that's because... It was. I mean, he did not have good judgment, and that could be attributed to the fact that he was tired. Very. So.
2: On the clock for 24 hours?
1: uh Uh-huh. They found that the captain initiated the turn from base leg to final approach at an airspeed that was below the calculated reference speed of 147 knots and less than 1,000 feet from the shoreline. And he allowed bank angles in excess of 50 degrees to develop. Not a great thing. At that point,
2: go around. Yeah, just go. You, you can, can always, always go, around. go
1: around. Except in very rare circumstances where you cannot.
2: Don't go around after you've activated your thrust reversion. Don't,
1: don't go around on bingo field. But, anyways.
2: Otherwise, you can always go around.
1: They could have gone around. They actually would have had plenty of outs because the direction they were heading as they went through the turn...
2: Is over the bay.
1: Is over the bay, and thus over the U.S. territory, and then they could have gone out over the water and had plenty of time, and just like they had discussed, if it wasn't going well, they could have come back around and done runway 28, which the winds favored at the time anyways.
0: Which is why they shouldn't have done runway 104. The heck of it.
1: Right. Now to be fair, the winds were not high, and they had... had agreed that actually it was still well within the limits of the airplane to land on runway one zero investigators don't deny that they had conditions enough to land on one zero that part didn't matter
0: but if you're ever saying just for the heck of it that's not a good reason
1: just for the heck of it while i'm exhausted hold my beer they found that the stall warning stick shaker had activated seven seconds prior to impact which is not much and five seconds before the airplane reached stall speed so it only stalled for about two seconds before it hit the ground we found that there was no loss of role authority at the onset of the artificial stall warning, stick shaker, and no evidence to indicate that the captain attempted to take proper corrective action at the onset of stick shaker because he was probably delayed in his reactions because he was tired. Now, also, you might have noticed...
0: He snapped at them.
1: He snapped at them when they were, like, telling him, like, go max power and do all these things. I got it! And he was screaming at him, I got it.
2: But you don't
1: got it. Right, it was Which too late. Which is
2: why there's three people in the cockpit.
1: Right. And they were that close from crash. So we'll discuss that part in a minute because that comes up in the recommendations. But part of fatigue. I got snappy. Yes. CRM was a big thing that they hit on in the recommendations. And you would think for 1993, that should already kind of be in existence. But we'll talk about it. That has a lot to do with the airline. The next two are tied together. The last two that I'm doing. They found that AIA's management structure and philosophy were insufficient to maintain diligent oversight and control of the rapidly expanding airline operation.
0: A.K.A. garbage. But also, this is not the first time we've heard that phrase
1: Not at all. This was substantiated by the inability of the director of operations to maintain aircraft flight manuals, crew training records, and various other required paperwork in an up-to-date and current status. So when they went to audit the airline because they had had an accident, they found that there was all sorts of things wrong.
0: At least they didn't catch them throwing in the shredder. Yeah,
1: that's... Yep. Tied in with that. They found that the surveillance and oversight of AIA by the FAA...
0: Was insufficient.
1: Yep, their inspectors and everything were not totally effective because of the minimal to non-existent FAA geographical support for oversight of the remote operations. So, that's it for the findings. There is a chunk of a probable cause. Oh, yeah. Which, for one of these old reports, I'm honestly surprised. But go for it.
0: The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident were the impaired judgment, decision-making, and flying abilities of the captain and flight crew due to the effects of fatigue, the captain's failure to properly assess the conditions for landing and maintaining vigilant situational awareness of the airplane while maneuvering onto final approach, his failure to prevent the loss of airspeed and avoid a stall while in the steep bank turn, and his failure to execute immediate action to recover from a stall. Additional factors contributing to the cause were the inadequacy of the flight and duty time regulations applied to 14 CFR Part 121 Supplemental Air Carrier, international operations, and the circumstances that resulted in the extended flight duty hours and fatigue of the flight crew members. Also contributing were the inadequate crew resource management training and the inadequate training and guidance by American International Airways, incorporated to the flight crew for operations at special airports such as Guantanamo Bay and the Navy's failure to provide a system that would assure that the local tower controller was aware of the inoperative strobe light so as to provide the flight crew with such information. Well-rounded.
1: Yes. They hit on all the major things. The strobe light they left at the end because it really was just kind of like the cherry on top of Uh
0: Uh-huh. And they definitely framed
1: it as such. (laughs) Everything that could go wrong basically did. And I think they summed that up pretty well, but the whole thing with the international operations and supplemental air carrier thing originally so the whole idea the whole philosophy behind why they didn't have really strict duty times for doing international flights is supposing that you're in a bit more of a critical situation where you have to get from somewhere international back to the united states you don't want to be limited by the number of hours needed should you be in one of those situations it is not but maybe
0: you should be limited
1: and it is not intended to be abused in this way where they're saying, oh, but if we fly you out of the country and make you come back, you can have more duty time.
2: But if they take it, if they can't take it, they will.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and at the time, you have to remember in 1990s, pilots were not paid near as well. And the only reason they
0: are now is because of the shortage.
1: Right. And it was a much more saturated thing. So pilots were not exactly in high demand. They were not Getting paid quite as well, so they would take the trips that they were given because they needed the money. And that's just how it was. Things have obviously changed a lot. Not to say that some pilots don't feel they should be paid more, but it is a different thing. It's a whole different thing now because we have a shortage. Now, for the recommendations to the FAA, they recommend revising the applicable subpart of 14 CFR Part 121 to require that flight time accumulated in non commercial, quote, tail end. End quote, ferry flights conducted under 14 CFR Part 91 as a result of 14 CFR Part 121 revenue flights be included in the flight crew members' total flight and duty time accrued during those revenue operations. Basically, they were getting away th- with flying the aircraft empty because it wasn't a revenue flight, so they were considering it Part 91 because it was a ferry, quote-unquote, rather than Part 121, so it wasn't factored into revenue duty time. What the f-
2: ever. So... They were overworked. Exactly. It's illegal.
1: Uh, you should not agreed. be
2: doing that.
1: So that's If you,
2: yo damn self, are, do not want to work 24 hours straight without sleeping, you should not schedule
1: your pilots to do so either. Right. What makes you think they want to fly an airplane <laughs> 24 hours into the day?
2: Well, and like having to do all other stuff that they have to do. Oh, yeah. On top of having to fly the airplane, oh yeah, like what makes you think that that's a good idea? I don't understand. I what? don't understand the
1: thought process. Exactly. So that's why <laughs> that changed. That did change.
2: It's like the the the, the whole thing about the high level executives making the decisions, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm like, do you want to work 18 hours straight?
1: Right. No.
2: No. Then why the hell are you making your employees work 18 hours straight? Right. It's not. It's not only is it just a bad idea due to fatigue, it's inhumane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. people need time to recover from work and dangerous as is what it is. Yes, it's just dumb. Yes, unfortunately.
0: Well, fortunately, really fortunately, we can say people did not die. Yes, but they could have
1: in this instance, they did not. This was a really good lesson learned, <laughs> though. Anyways. They recommended expediting the review and upgrade of flight slash duty time limitations for federal aviation regulations to ensure that they incorporate the results of the latest research on fatigue and sleep issues. And they make sure they do so basically throughout all of, you know, commercial aviation. They did. They did. Thanks, NASA. So there you go. They recommend revising 14 CFR section 121.445 to eliminate subparagraph C and require that all flight crew members meet the requirements for operation to or from a special airport, either by operating experience or pictorial means. So not just a video.
0: I mean, that's what pictorial means means.
1: Right. So they're saying they really should have operational experience in order to fly into there. So have a crew that's done it before.
0: Or simmed it before. Right.
1: And piggyback off that. That's really what they're saying. Two, AIA, or American International Airways, We recommend revising the AIA training program to ensure that all pilots receive crew resource management, or CRM, training that conforms to the guidelines set forth in FAA Advisory Circular 120-51A.
0: What a concept.
1: What a concept. They might need CRM, especially when landing at a critical airport under fatigue, all those things. CRM is 1,000% useful in this case. They recommend reviewing and revising the AIA Special Airports Training Program to require, in addition to flight crew members, flight engineers to participate in the AIA Special Airports Training Program. The revised program should ensure that all flight crew members who operate airplanes with high approach speeds are aware and understand the effects of high bank angles and increased load factors, adverse wind conditions, and required flight path profiles necessary to perform the approach. So if you're going to do a crazy approach, everybody in the cockpit should be aware of it. And they really should know exactly how to do it. No. So, all of those are obviously incredibly important recommendations. They also recommended the whole special airports thing in relation to the Navy and how they should be, and the Department of Defense, and how they should make sure that they're aware of the strobe light thing, as well as make sure they're communicating all necessary information for these special airports and critical approaches and things like that. But they also reiterated a previous recommendation that I thought was, you know, important. They reiterated, recommending requiring U.S. air carriers operating under 14 CFR Port 121 to include, as part of pilot training, a program to educate pilots about the detrimental effects of fatigue and strategies for avoiding fatigue and countering its effects.
0: Including saying no.
1: Right. Saying no, recognizing when you're under fatigue, and then being able to use CRM to say, I need help making a good decision. As well as, you know, doing things to help you. Not be so tired and affect your decision making. And that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's the whole thing.
0: Okay.
2: Well, let's go over our trivia questions.
1: Yes, let's.
2: Okay. These were semi-harder than normal, I would say. Do you remember what they are off the top of your head? (sighs) The first one is, what's Christy's favorite ice cream flavor? The answer is Ben and Jerry's fish food. Yes. If we already answered these, sorry. I don't remember if we did or not.
1: Second one. I think we did it in a post-episode.
2: Yeah, we did. The second one is what's Nick's favorite ice cream flavor, and that is
1: butter pecan.
2: Yep. Or pecan, depending on where you come from. <laughs> butter pecan. It's too
1: sweet. I say as fish foods like all sugar. Yeah, I was going to say, like, yours is the sweet one. Yours is sharp sweet. Mine is like... Warm and delicious. I
2: really like both. So, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I like both. I like both.
2: What is your favorite ice cream?
1: I don't think I have. I was one. gonna say, I think you're probably undecided because I've never heard it. No, and I feel like I would know by now. I
2: really like pretty much all ice cream. I don't think there's an ice cream I can think of that I didn't, I have tried that I don't like. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, third question What is Miranda's favorite brand of whiskey and what's her favorite version of it? Shout out to Bob for trying.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. It's. A Canadian whiskey, it's Crown. Crown Royal. And my favorite version is vanilla, but I also like the seasonal flavors as well.
1: Yeah.
0: The peach and the salted caramel are both fantastic. And then the last question is,
2: what is the name of Miranda's cat? Contrary to what Bob said. Yeah. Which he said, stop on my bed.
1: Which you are correct. Yes. But also.
2: But her name is Nina. (laughs) Nina. Nina she, she told Nina. She has stopped pooping in Miranda's bed for this. Yes. She was just angry. She was just angry. Because she had to wear her donut and yep. she didn't like it. And she didn't like that I wasn't responding to her pooping on the floor. So she pooped in my bed while I was sleeping in my bed.
1: Now to be fair, I too would be angry if I had to wear a donut and not eat one. <laughs> just saying.
0: <laughs> Miranda also lives very close to Winchells and I don't know
2: how she does it.
1: I don't either. I don't
2: think about it, actually.
1: And we also live next to a restaurant that we don't visit. Near often enough, but we do every now and again.
2: I want to go tomorrow. You
1: want to go tomorrow?
2: Okay.
0: I should probably tell Caitlin
2: that. Okay. Anyway, I don't remember the name of the airline or the <laughs> flight number. American, American International, International Airways, Airways
0: a.k.a. Kalitta, Kalitta Air. Which I just looked up. Their call sign is Connie because it was
2: founded by Connie Kalitta.
1: That makes sense. Flight 808.
2: Okay. I was like, what's the flight number? 808. Thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Please feel free to send us messages and stuff. Please leave comments and things and good reviews. And things. And things. Be sure to answer <laughs> next month's trivia questions
0: on the newsletter. That being said, subscribe to the newsletter.
1: Yes. Miranda check does. out the
0: MERS
2: page. Check out the Patreon. Yep. You can, all stuff. You can join us in our matching PJs.
1: Someday. Yeah, someday. Someday.
2: We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week.
0: Keep your speed up.